Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. What did start us? A lot of uncertainty. A lot of the uncertainty created because he said three things over the past three or four days that he's ready to negotiate with the Ukrainians. Two, that he uh, is going to authorize the Yamal pipeline, which is an on-land pipeline that has not been operating. It's not the Nord Stream 1 and 2 that were blown up off Sweden, but this is an on-land pipeline that's operational, that he's going to authorize them to start delivering gas into Europe. And three, yesterday, he said any country or entity taking Russian oil under the price cap system, the $60 price cap system, will not be eligible to pick up exported Russian crude as of February 1. That plus the Chinese completely reversing their zero COVID policy and trying to go for herd immunity pretty quickly has strengthened the price of oil. If ceasefire developed based on negotiation between Ukraine, Russia, US, and Europeans, I think the price of LNG would come down. The overall impact on US natural gas ought to be okay. There's this theory that US natural gas in the second half of 23 will trade as low as $3, even though the futures price says four and a half. The theory is that the, 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 the export facilities for LNG, which are being worked on, won't be ready yet. And there'll be continued increase in production from the Haynesville in, in Louisiana and Texas and associated gas from, from, uh, from the Permian. The hub out there, which is Waha, continues to trade at very big discounts from Houston Ship Channel or Henry Hub. So that's kind of worrisome on the Permian gas. What to make of it? I think if you always wanted to own EQT or Antero or Chesapeake to pick three gas companies, you probably wouldn't want to buy more than a half position now. On oil companies, I'm thinking, I mean, the oil companies that, that I plan to put on a page maybe as early as this weekend, so you'd have it next week. The three I'd focus on upstream companies are EOG, Magnolia, and Permian Resources, which is a new company that has been pushed together that's a Delaware-only company. I, I think that I probably 
be inclined, given the uncertainty in involving Ukraine and you know how quickly China opens up. I think I, if I wanted to add to a position or or, or start a position again, I, I I think I would only be buying half of the position on the theory. I might get the rest later, lower. In terms of the economy, U.S. economy, and you know, there definitely seems to be a slowing of, of inflation. Remember, the Fed has their own statistics. They don't, I mean, obviously, they have to pay attention to consumer price index because it's publicized and whatnot. But they have this, I think it's called PC, personal consumption expenditures or something like that, which they have more confidence in than the consumer price index. It's it's running at you know five or something and trending down. So they are making some progress. They seem to, so far as I know, be bringing the, uh, the Fed balance sheet down by $90 billion a month to around a trillion dollars a year. And that's good because that it's way too high. It was, you know, it was two back before and Bernanke sold the rest of the board members on quantitative easing to try to increase the rate of increase in the, in the economy after 0809 got to four and a half then they they started pre-covid they started to bring it down to four but went from four to nine for that covid so probably down now to you know under eight because we've had about three months of 30 billion and i think we switched over to 90 billion in like june or july or something so you know progress is being made so far, nothing is cracked. I mean, you think the FDX and the crypto exchanges and whatnot would have happened without that diminution. The other interesting thing that happened, I think, since last Wednesday is that the Japanese seem to be giving up on maintaining a ceiling on Japanese government bond prices. They've, they've allowed it to go to 50 basis points. And the thing is, they may allow it to go another 50 basis points. They very high debt relative to their GNP, but all their debt is taken care of internally by savings, Japanese savings. They're not dependent on you know, other people owning Japanese government bonds, but but their debt to GNP is very high. They've been trying to create some inflation in the economy. Japan's been in a like 20-year deflation, and they are starting to see like 3% inflation, which is what they what they where they where they want to try to get to um with that i want to comment quickly on uh, page 13 which is a comparison of pfizer moderna lily and merck and we're going to come back to this in a second but in terms of cash flow the the leading company amongst these in terms of free cash flow is Pfizer. I would say of all the companies we've looked at, I mean, they have about 40 billion of free cash flow. So remember Apple's around 90, Microsoft is around 60, Exxon is around 60. So far, now 40, I think is a pretty solid fourth place of all the companies we've looked at. That's kind of impressive. Mike's gonna have some commentary on that in a second. You'll notice Vivian, when she does these, when she sends it out, she calls it the non-energy energy, non-energy. 
as there is now a second energy page, page 12, which is a comparison of Kinder Morgan Enterprise Energy Transfer and Williams. And you would think that these companies would be big free cash generators. They're not. They're not. I mean, the largest is energy transfer at eight. And I mean, energy transfer has 47 million, 47 billion of debt. Enterprise, which I think is the pick of the litter, is around six, but they have 29 billion of debt. So when you take out interest and the dividends are committed to, there's not a whole lot of cash flow to reduce debt. But that, since Pfizer looks cheap, I mean, Pfizer isn't as cheap as, as Exxon. Exxon is trading in, you know, like six or seven times free cash flow. Pfizer's trading at eight times, so 12% free cash yield. So the next one in line, Moderna, which of course is, I mean, Pfizer has 98 billion of, of, uh, of revenues and Moderna has 18. Well, I think Pfizer did more in, in, in COVID vaccines than Moderna did. So that 98 would be, you know, like 75 or, or something like that without, without the COVID vaccine. Moderna, just on their 18 billion of revenues, free cash flow of eight and a half, and they're trading at nine times free cash flow, about 11% free cash yield. Now, Mike, in looking at this, is, is going to give you a, a, a briefing on what he, what he, where he thinks, what, what, why he thinks that this looks, may not be as cheap as it looks. Over to you, Mike. Yeah, so when I first peeled this back, you see that Pfizer's had a really incredible couple of years. They've gone from kind of a run rate revenue of in the $40 billion range to over double that. And you look at all of the drugs that they, and they, they break their revenue down by their individual drugs that they've brought to market. When you break it down that way, you realize that over 50% of the revenue comes from a COVID-related drug, whether it's a vaccine or the treatment whose name I sort of escapes me at the moment. So, you know, you got to remember that some of that is going to be at least somewhat transitory. They are historically leading up to COVID. They've sort of been unsuccessful in launching new blockbuster drugs to replace their existing pipeline. In the coming five years between 2025 and 2030, they're going to lose about $14 billion worth of run rate 2021 revenue from the, um, from drugs coming off patent. There is a immunology drug and a cardiology drug and a cancer drug. And all that adds up to about $14 billion. So under today's numbers, that's what 15% of revenue, not including COVID uh, related rated drugs, that's 30% of revenue or more. So it's fairly significant. So the bet on Pfizer is that they can get their pipeline of drugs that are in development and start making significant money off them. So if you look at the pipeline, there's some really interesting stuff in the pipeline. But again, it's a bet on something that's very uncertain. And and the the, uh, the pharmaceutical companies and drug development, I mean, that's a whole region of investing that is really challenging. I Both Jason and I have a pretty 
decent understanding of the clinical trials process. We've built a software company in that space before, so we've, we've got some background to it. And all I can tell you is that it's really hard. <laughs> Even though a drug looks very promising, it could fail miserably in a very late stage trial and suck up a lot of resources in the process. Anything to add there, Jason? No, no, completely agree. I mean, it, it's if these drugs look promising, it, it could come down to just poorly designed clinical trial or a whole number of factors. So it is a bit of a, a risk on even if you have a promising drug in your pipeline, whether it reaches market or not. Yeah. The others, Eli Lilly and Merck, more traditional pharmaceutical companies, are trading at way less free cash flow. Lilly has has six billion of free cash flow, and Merck has thirteen. I make Lilly trading for fifty times free cash flow for a two percent yield. Merck trading at twenty-three times cash flow for a four percent free cash yield. So I just can't help because you know, being an energy person, I I can't help but make the comparison with Exxon. Exxon, of course, free cash flow is up fifty percent because of the price of oil. So their free cash flow is 65, up from 30. Pfizer's free cash flow is 40 billion, up from probably without COVID and adjusting for some of the drugs running out, it's probably 20, not 40. If you adjust it for that, you can adjust Exxon from 65, get back down to 30 or something like that. Both of them are trading at about seven times free cash flow, so that would get you with half as much cash flow, I could get you down to 14 times. Neither one of them has any debt to speak of. 14 times would be 7 or 8% free cash flow. Pfizer pays out dividends, $9 billion out of 40, or $9 billion out of 20 adjusted. Exxon pays 15 out of 65, or 15 out of 30 adjusted. To both yielding 3.2 percent, I don't know that <laughs> I can't help myself, you know, to make a comparison back and forth, which I know is kind of ham-handed, and definitely want to pay attention to Mike's comments and Jason's comments. With that, since we're limiting ourselves to 30 minutes, like to, and we want to leave a little bit of time at the end to talk AI software because it's so, you know, it's on so many people's minds. But I'd like to switch to Tesla, which is page three. When these numbers were put together the third week of October, Tesla was 214. It's now about half that. We put these numbers together. It definitely had free, has free cash flow, about $8 billion, $75 billion of sales. It definitely has a stronger balance sheet in that it has effectively no debt than Ford or GM have. But at 214, it's trading for 80 times free cash flow. At half that, that would be 40 times free cash flow, which is still pretty hefty. But definitely something to to watch. Now, Mike and Jason are going to cover 
their stance on Tesla because they've started to nibble. I think it is, you know, less than five percent of their partnership. But with that, turn it turn it over to Mike and Jason to give you their thinking on Tesla. Sure. So I'll, I'll start, but Jason, if you want to jump in, go for it. So Tesla is a company we've been following for a little while. Um, obviously, we discussed on the podcast a few months ago, or close to a year ago even, we basically said the hypothetical, what if they were doing 2 million units a year, which they're actually pretty close to now. It's been that long since we initially did that analysis. And looking at the gross margins they were doing and the scale that they were building their factories to, we were impressed with the way that they're building cars relative to the traditional auto manufacturers. Some of those things involve scale due to volume. And and the example is if you go back in time, Ford and GM, they all used to produce much higher run rate models for cars. And what happened over time is they started developing platforms on which to develop different cars that they ran smaller number of units on, like 300,000 a year or something like that, which is a relatively small number. And what Tesla has been successful at, at least so far, is developing these platforms, whether it's the SX platform and the 3Y platform, and really scaling the production and manufacturing and automating that production. And the end result of that has been better than market gross margins. You can apportion some of that to their manufacturing prowess. You can apportion some of that to the nature of an electric vehicle having maybe less moving parts and maybe less intense manufacturing. Now, some of the input costs have been a challenge, and Tesla has been sort of ahead of all of their competitors. We've been pretty deep into Rivian and Lucid and some of the other would-be startup EV companies. Also, the Ford and Volkswagen that are making concerted efforts at converting their fleets over to electric. So basically what we came to the conclusion of is Tesla is very far ahead of the others. I guess we, we don't have a, um, a strong held belief that electric battery electric is the only way that uh, we will transition our energy sources, but it will be one way. And it's the way that Tesla has established their lead. Will they have more competition in future years? They'll definitely have more competition. Um, but given their incumbency and the strength of their brand and the quality of their products relative to the competition, I don't think they're going to struggle to grow um, at the rate at which they plan to grow. So I'll, I'll pause there because, Jason, if you want to jump in, we, we just started taking a very small piece of a position and and we hope to be able to buy more at lower prices. So we'll see where it goes. Absolutely. But the thing that impressed me about Tesla is within their manufacturing process, they strive for efficiencies. And, and an example of that is uh, limiting the number of pieces in the car. I, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but they use a much lower number of pieces to build one of the Tesla models as compared to, you know, the, the traditional Ford and GMs. So in that way, they can command much higher margins on their cars. And that's, you know, that's what's really been interesting to us. Absolutely. Musk famously says the company to compare Tesla to is Apple. 
which is also on page three. Apple's in kind of a sinking position. Apple is fascinating to me because it's got so much free cash flow. Now, we're talking about adjustments to Pfizer's free cash flow and Exxon's free cash flow. The, the run rate on free cash flow on Apple is $95 billion. And when we did these numbers again in October, you know, in the 145 range, it was 25 times free cash flow, 4% free cash yield. Obviously, with the difficulties of making a uh, making the, the equipment in China, and and also demand for the equipment, uh, that free cash flow is probably going to be curtailed. So, I think it's something to keep an eye on. But here's the interesting thing about Apple: if Musk is right that that is the comparison to make at current free cash flow, Apple around 25 times. In order to get Tesla down to 25 times, you know, it's probably probably gonna slot in around 80 or $85 a share. Now, will there be more upside? In other words, you don't wanna just look at the free cash yield, you wanna look at the potential for growing the free cash flow. I think we probably, at least between the three of us, could develop a consensus that despite all of Apple's strength and the million of worldwide users or whatever it is, we would probably think that five years from now, Tesla has a much better chance to double its free cash flow than Apple does. I think what Mike and Jason have owned Apple, but they owned it when it was like nine or 10% free cash yield. So whether or not we'll see Apple at that level again is, you know, we'll, we'll see. But anything to add there, Mike or Jason? I guess on just to reiterate, I, I completely agree that the upside for Tesla is much larger, not just in cars, because we, we see them producing 10x the number of cars that they currently do over the course of the next 10 years or so. That's been a stated goal of theirs internally, but they they also have the humanoid robot project and some of these other things that are sort of far out there that you get for quote unquote for free along with the, just the automotive growth. So, so that's where that's where we see that. Um, Jason, anything else to add there? No, that's that's a great point to bring up, and they're they really are one of the leaders in artificial intelligence and. Um, even within designing chips that are specifically tailored to the to the AI processes that they build. Staying on page three, we've got five minutes left to talk about AI software. And the middle company on page three, Alphabet or Google, is the one that everyone thinks is most challenged by this development. The recent commentary I've seen is that Google probably has best AI software. It's just they haven't unveiled it. And for commercial reasons, uh, it's not just to protect their their search business, but also because I guess the, the 
the AI software that, that, that has been developed and has been used, including by Mike and Jason, a little unpredictable in terms of, you know, it's been come out with racial words and all kinds of stuff. But with that, why don't we lead off with Jason? I don't think I could talk Jason into even that you know, lower levels of acquiring Google stock, but how does, how is Google's reaction to all this look to you at this point, Jason? Yeah, I guess I haven't seen much of a reaction, um, which is fine. It, it, it's happening quickly and they're being patient. And like you said, that's a great point that a lot of these AI systems learn every, learn all the behaviors and, and responses based on what humans have written and published on the internet and the way they interact with it. And, you know, humans, humans sometimes can say crazy things. The AI learns from that and then repeats it in a, and Facebook has two great examples of that where they've opened up AI chatbots to the public and it learns from the public and they've quickly learned to be, you know, racist or, you know, say other crazy, you know, promoting conspiracy theories or other kinds of things like that. So it's very understandable if Google was holding this back while they perfect that. They they would not want um they would not want any AI to be trained on that kind of stuff that, you know, or have its behavior impacted by user inputs that, you know, it's is going to provide an answer that is potentially offensive. Right. Mike, uh, how do you see Microsoft's investment in this? And how do you see Microsoft using this to possibly, I, I think we all had assumed that, that Bing, their search product had been discontinued, but it's still out there. Uh, what's, how do you see this as an opportunity for Microsoft? That's a good question. You know, it's public that Microsoft did make an investment in OpenAI. They have a partnership of some sort where the, their services are run on Azure. I think that Microsoft will look at this, and it's kind of based on the way that they've run the business since Nadella was, has been running the company. I think they'll look at this as how do we facilitate the use of these large language models for our large enterprise customers? And I think that, They've started by offering access to some of this stuff through Azure. And maybe that develops into some of their existing products that they sell. But I think that will be the path. I'd be a little bit surprised if they make another stab at a consumer-facing search product since their results have been so horrific in the past on, on that venture. So I, I think Microsoft will stick to their bread and butter, which is B2B. Mm -hmm. Microsoft is around on page nine. You know, we talked about the vulnerability of Apple's cash flow with supply chain issues, you know, the difficulty of making making the iPhones and other equipment in China, and then China's a very strong market for them. We talked about the vulnerability of Exxon with, you know, lower commodity prices, vulnerability of Pfizer with not needing as much COVID vaccine and, and patent explorations, Microsoft at 62 billion, unless Mike or Jason can come up with something. I, I think that 62 billion of free cash flow in Microsoft is pretty solid. 
Any commentary on that, Jason? No, I, I think Microsoft does have a pretty good opportunity ahead with using these large language models in in separate verticals within the business consumer. You can think of sales contracts, land leases, certain you know more easy to 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 draft legal templates. Those kind of things could be generated through AI given a few prompts about the contract you might be negotiating or that, and it can take templates that it knows about um, and tailor those specifically to, you know, the case that, that someone has potentially, you know, a Salesforce could utilize something like that as well. So I think those, those kind of companies will come out with products this coming year that will make use of this. And, and it's all about driving efficiencies in, in the workplace, which is, you know, what Microsoft strives to do. For next week, it's, uh, we have these long weekends, and, and I hope to be able to get page uh, 14 and 15 done. I think 14, as I mentioned earlier, will be looking at three oil companies, EOG, Permian Resources, which is new result of a merger, and uh, Magnolia, which is a company that operates down the Eagleford. So we'll have three oil companies hope in a subsequent weekend to put, not not this coming weekend, but a subsequent weekend to put together a comparison of the three large gas companies, EQT and Taro and, and Chesapeake. The other thing I'm gonna tackle this weekend is um, a comparison of McDonald's, Starbucks, and Chipotle. And uh, I've already kind of glanced over the 10 Qs I don't think we're going to challenge the, the cash flow hierarchy here of Apple at 90 and and Microsoft and Exxon at 60 and Pfizer at 40, but we'll continue to focus on you know where the free cash flow is and what the prospect for that free cash flow going up because you know we're equity investors we want growth in the free cash flow we we it's fine to have a five or six percent or in microsoft's case it's trading for about 30 times free cash flow so that's three percent so the only thing i'd say in microsoft's you know three percent seems too low but they they uh they may have a strong enough business with opportunities uh from ai that maybe they can increase their cash flow ten percent a year well ten percent three percent thirteen percent probably still to make a an investment Microsoft that would be competitive against other investments is probably going to want to see a somewhat lower stock price or a somewhat higher free cash flow. And with that, we'll be on next Wednesday at 3.30. In the meantime, everyone stay well and stay healthy and we'll continue to turn these pages out. You can get the pages from Diane or I think actually the pages may be up on Mike and Jason's website. Take care, everyone. Be well. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in again next week as we will be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.
The views expressed on this podcast are the host's alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the hosts nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information, and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.